Hello there. I'm Sam Frankie Fox, host of the Night Shift podcast. This is a podcast designed for people, parents, carers, anyone awake at night, busy soothing little ones, wanting some company. It has two parts to it. The first is a series of gripping stories that will help you stay awake. And the second is a collection of natural sounds and original music that we've made as a relaxing sleep aid for you to drift off to. So welcome to the first story episode, where I'll be reading the following by writer Emily Ayres. A single-ish mum comes face to face with the wild side of the natural world in this beautiful and witty magic realism three-parter. Now, night soothers, we invite you to settle in with us. Together, let's tune in with the rhythms of The Night Shift. The Following by Emily Ayres Episode 1 The rain is insistent. It wants to be let in. Will he come in this weather? I'm waiting for the blink of his eye in the darkness of Anton's room. I'm listening for the swish of his tail as he climbs the stairs. Even if I can't see him, I can feel him. But tonight, he is not here. Not yet. I wonder if he is in someone else's room. I feel... Is it jealousy? (laughs) Absurd. The health visitor had suggested that I keep a journal of Anton's development to give me something to focus on. She wasn't very clear about what I should be journaling about exactly. So I devised a system where I could enter his sleeping and waking times in one column, his physical changes, such as height and weight, in another, bottles and the amount taken in a third, and any key milestones in the fourth, with some attempt at cross-referencing through the use of symbols. I hid a snag when I kept leaving the journal at home. So I had to start a second journal for when we're out, and now the data doesn't match. I think I'll have to start again. And this time, I will colour code. I have not written about our night visitor. Where would I begin? I had Anton when I was 36 and a third, which makes me a geriatric mum. Funny because the process has actually proved a catalyst for the early-onset arthritis, which is now making me feel much, much older, crumbling through my joints as if they're made from stale cake. It started the moment I realised I was pregnant. In fact, that's how I knew I was pregnant. I was climbing out of my car, and I just got stuck, like a hermit crab halfway out of its shell. 
it soon became nearly impossible to straighten my hair, as I couldn't hold my shoulder at the necessary angle. Pregnancy was bad, but postpartum is worse because you actually have to keep doing stuff whilst everything hurts, and no one is as nice to you. Now my hips are stretched and thin-feeling. My shoulder is permanently frozen into a little French shrugging gesture. My neck and knees crunch and get stuck at witchy angles. Soon I'll be able to frighten the neighbourhood children at Halloween without even needing to dress up. My mum is sorry it started so young. Hers didn't kick in until she was in her fifties, and by then her council house was rammed so full that she didn't have much space to move anyway. Mum is a classic hoarder, a collector, she calls it, but we both know there's no value in anything she's collecting. If you can get through the door, the postman has started leaving letters in a box by the gate now, as there's no point trying to get them through the letterbox. You have to squeeze through two plinths of ironic, good housekeeping magazines and a tangle of nightmarish fake Tiffany lamps before you can get to the kitchen to put the kettle on. She has a primary kettle and six others, which she says is common sense in case the primary one breaks. I often find going to her house so stressful that I have to have a bath in the dark afterwards. Dad died when I was 16, which is a shame, not least because he helped to curb some of Mum's wilder habits and encourage some healthier ones like ballroom dancing, which they did every Friday. I used to watch from the side of the working men's club room, munching my way through packet after packet of prawn cocktail crisps as they wheeled around the dance floor's wooden boards, worn shiny by decades of romance. They're pretty good, I think. Mum has since become something of a conspiracy theorist. Whenever I join her on her weekly charity shop round, she always ends up in conversation with someone about crop circles or ghostly shadows seen in broad daylight or recipes for everlasting youth, turning to me, wide-eyed and mouthing, I told you, with an impish grin. I tell her that this is what happens when you don't have a proper job, and at the very least, she should volunteer to give back to society. She tells me I should quit my job and do something more spiritually rewarding, and that my chakras are terminally blocked by my scepticism. Then we have to go back to her house and drink herbal tea whilst she does a fashion show of her new floaty skirts, and then I go back to my proper job. In a bank. I love my job. I like counting all the notes at the end of the day with the machines and tapping them on the desk before wrapping them in their paper sheaths. I especially like it when the new money arrives. It's so untouched and perfect like virgin snow. I unwrap it carefully, giving it the respect it deserves. People think money, having lots of it or talking about it too much, or even paying it any attention at all, is dirty, ugly somehow. But to me, it's an expression of human effort, perseverance, 
ingenuity. Its muscle and grind and sweat made clean. It's unevenly distributed, yeah. But that's not the money's fault. I like the neat little old ladies who come in to withdraw £20 on their way to the food hall at Marks and Spencer, folding it so carefully into their purses. I like the red-faced gamblers who shuffle in at lunchtime to withdraw a lot more than £20, winking at me as I pass the money through the grate. I'm not allowed to be seen to be encouraging them, so I can't wink back. But I give them a little smile and tell them to read the numbers carefully. I've always liked numbers. They're very neat. They either add up or they don't. Michael, Anton's dad, is one of those people who talks about money a lot. The cost of things, the tax on his payslip, whether every bill or receipt is correct. But he's kind and he's never ill, so he's got good genes which I was happy to harbour. He's around and not around, lurking on the edges of our life with a bucket of fried chicken and a bottle of wine, waiting for Anton to be old enough to kick a ball around with. By then my joints might be so stiff that I can't do it. So we will need him. He was a brief flame, not to be confused with a romance. And I don't regret it. But I'm not tidying up after him for the rest of my life. Both Mum and Michael said Anton's name sounded pretentious. But it isn't. He's named after that dancer on TV. So light-footed and happy, with a spring in his step. Wow. Thank God that's over. I was given a hypnobirthing book by a well-meaning friend when I got pregnant. And I honestly tried to think about the pain as pressure. I, I really did. But it was so twisty and relentless that I couldn't concentrate on anything but the fact that I was clearly going to die and no one was really doing anything about it. I kept shouting, Why is everyone so bloody calm in here? Anyway, it's over now. I'm lying next to him. My tiny boy. The reassuring beep-beeping of the machines and the whir of trolleys and footsteps in the corridors outside. But mostly quiet. Mostly just the sound of breath rushing in and out of tiny nostrils. I have my ear right next to his nose. Just breathing in the sound of his breath. Every inhalation a step towards a life. I've lost a lot of blood and my joints are on fire so... They're keeping us in a bit longer. But soon, little one, I'll carry you in my arms right out into the new world. The flat-footed midwife comes in and gives me a couple of painkillers. And I say to her, God, it's hot in here. Why is it so hot? Are you hot? I'm so hot. And she pauses briefly to feel my forehead frowning, then shrugs and says, feels all right to me, 
before wandering out of the room. I suddenly realise I have no idea what time it is. Day or night. The blinds are down, the lights are dimmed. Perhaps it is night. I should try and sleep. I'm just drifting off into a fretful nap when I hear it. It's a low whistling sound. Almost musical, like a train in the distance, but rising into a rhythmic hum. My first thought is that it must be one of the nurses chanting outside. Maybe a ritual circle birth thing? But no. The sound is coming from inside our room. From the corner by the window. It's getting louder. The radiators? Surely they haven't turned the heating up. It's so hot in here. I'm sweating. My nightie is stuck to my stomach and armpits. I glance around the room again, but there is nothing there. Nothing I can make out in the blue gloom. The sound reaches a metallic crescendo. Surely others can hear it now. Why don't they come? Raising my hand automatically to my temple, I can feel the blood rushing there. That's when I see it. An eye. Yellow and rounded. Lined with black and looking right at me. The eye becomes two eyes. They blink. The yellow turns to bright acid green. Then an exquisite glacier blue. Then a soft glowing amber before returning to its yellow. They are narrow and intense and seem to bob in the dark. An expanded few seconds in which I consider screaming or pulling the red alarm cord. But what if the midwife thinks I'm crazy and can't see the eyes at all? She might send a psychiatrist in or a whole sequence of them, each with differently worded versions of the same questions. I am trapped. It's as if the eyes know I won't call for help. Because I think I sense... Is it smugness? No. It's not smugness. It's patience. A powerful confidence emanates from the corner of the room. And I can't stop staring. Narrowing my eyes into the dark, I can see an outline of a figure... And it's upright, tall and lean. I suddenly wonder if the flat-footed nurse has drugged me. It's not unheard of. Anton does a quick intake of breath, then pushes it out again. Like a dog dreaming. I cover him with my arm. I will cover him with my whole body if I need to. The figure shifts its balance forward into a corridor of dim light and the eyes become flanked by columns of burnt orange fur. The orange merges into a dirty white lined across by wiry whiskers and sliding down to a long, wet, black snout. I let out an involuntary whimper so feeble it almost makes me laugh. I suddenly feel tiny and frozen in time a doll left on a bed by its owner. What the hell is going on? I whisper. What the hell is going on? 
The thin black mouth is taut, with just a hint of a smile. Sweat drips from my armpits, and the backs of my knees are prickling. Can I run? I can't run. I look at the door. It seems so far away. I turn back to the figure. Its ears, alert and twitching in my direction, are huge, burning, red peaks with black tips, filled with dense, ragged fur. One of them has a nick in it, as if someone has taken a little bite. But it's the eyes that I can't stop looking at. They bewitch me. It steps forward out of the gloom. I shrink back against the bed as my eyes follow it up, up, up. It must be six feet tall at least. Way taller than me, way taller than I thought possible. And I gaze at its long white belly from the neck down to its hind legs, wondering how on earth something so toweringly strange got into my hospital room and why. I think my heart will stop. It is hammering so hard, I can't tear my eyes away, but I want to disappear. I'm covering my face with my hands and peering through my fingers at the animal, lean and muscular and tall, so tall. Then it bows, a deep, graceful bow, and speaks. Hello, Sarah. So there you have it, the first episode of The Night Shift. And wasn't it an engrossing one? If you were entranced by Sarah and her night visitor, then please like and subscribe to this podcast so that you're notified of all new episode releases. Now, if you're still awake, settling your little one, you can tune in to the other story episodes. But if you're now ready to snooze, please check out our sounds collection for music and natural sounds to doze to. You can find more info on the creative process and people behind this project by visiting the podcast page on our website www.babiesadventuresinmusic.com or follow us on Instagram by searching the night.shift.podcast On our website, you'll also find details of our upcoming live shows and concerts. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do tell your family and friends about it. It honestly makes a big, big difference to the reach of this project if you can take a moment to like and subscribe. Go on, it'll take like 10 seconds. Help another night soother out there by recommending us to them. And if you really like what we do, then please consider supporting us directly by donating the price of a track download or even an album via the link in the description. Or help others find us by leaving a review. Support of any kind allows us to continue creating more of these beautiful stories and sounds together. The Night Shift is a baby's adventures in music podcast brought to you by Curiosity Productions. It is created by Fox and Trosha. That's myself, Sam Frankie Fox, 
with Ricardo Santos Rocha. I read the stories and we both make the music. Voice on stories recorded by James Cavell. Guest writers are Emily Ayres and Rochi Rampal. Our advisor on nature and nocturnal behaviour is Jane Grove. Podcast advisor is Holly Close. This podcast is made possible thanks to funding from Arts Council England, with additional support from Birmingham and Black Country Wildlife Trust and the Midlands Arts Centre. The Night Shift team would like to thank all of the families who helped us to develop this podcast through our focus groups. We're very grateful to them and the wider creative team for their advice, wisdom and generosity. Thanks so much for listening.